0: Okay, we're going to play a game of hangman. Okay. Ten letters. Take it away. A. There is an A. There's an A here. R. On a roll so far. Uh, I. You're guessing great. T. Ooh, the first whiff. No T. S. You get a head. Ooh, no oh, S. No. Oh, she's I was falling doing apart. doing so well. She's Tell crumbling. It. You get a body. D. Ooh, mm. really falling apart here. Oh, no. No D. Okay. L. There is an L at the Ooh. very end of the word. E. You got an E too. You're back on the bandwagon. Second letter is an E. D. Oh, I already said D. Sorry. <coughs> That's why we write the letters down. Uh, yep. Yeah. M. No M. Mm. Two legs. O. No O. Oh, man. What's you that one funnel? An arm. Oh, no. V. Wow. Pulled out one of the harder letters. Third letters of V. G. Mmm, sorry babe, no G, you lose, but keep Bummer. guessing, speed round. C. Ooh, no C, you double lose. F. Triple lose. H. Quadruple lose. N. Uh? One N? Oh man! Two N. Nev, uh, U. Ooh, no, you, you're losing so a- much. A-E-I-O-U-Y. Why? Why? Yeah. You got it. N- Neveneril? Neveneril? <laughs> Neveneril? I barely know her. I don't know who that is. is that a- I don't even know what it is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a magic word. What does it mean? It's Larry Nevin backwards. I don't know who that is either. He's some guy. Oh. Yeah, I never would have gotten that. Thanks for playing.
1: (laughs) Hi, friends, and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony always reads the release notes. Maddox, uh,
2: everybody does. No, have we had no. this nickname before?
1: <laughs> we definitely haven't. Most people don't read the release notes on anything. I, the only release notes I read are the release notes for Cube Cobra. I don't read anything else's release notes. But I know you have a habit of every little app on your phone, every little dinky piece of software. You're always reading the full release notes. Is this just because you've written
2: release notes in your life and you? You want that work to be recognized. This is a gross exaggeration. I definitely don't read all the release notes for all the quote-unquote dinky little apps. I've Uh, seen you read a whole EULA. Just sit
1: down and (laughs) page through the whole end-user license agreement. A gross exaggeration. Call up your legal team and say, like, am
2: I okay giving up? I definitely read a lot of release notes. uh, You know, for our day jobs, we do a lot of computers. And I don't know know if most people know this, but when you're writing software, you're not just writing... You know, you're not writing the whole software. You're including a lot of third-party like extra stuff that other people yeah are writing. yeah yeah yeah. And it's uh, really valuable to re- read the release notes there, where it's not just like, oh, cool, my weather app has a new feature. I can change icon. It's gonna rain less. You're often. talking about the release it's notes like, on like React or right. whatever. It's like, hey, you better change this because you, if you expected this to keep working, you're you, you're you're gonna be sad. You're gonna have a bad you're gonna have job, a job, and your clients are gonna be unhappy. I with I just you. don't want to be surprised.
1: Yeah, surprises. I don't like surprises either. Are we unfun for not liking surprises?
2: Okay, but specifically, I don't like unfun surprises. And when it comes to computers, (laughs) the number of fun surprises I've had with a computer.
1: It's kind of a self-fulfilling statement there. Like, no, I don't like unfun things. (laughs) I do like fun things.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's just a matter of, you know, experience. If there's an area of my life that surprises tend to be fun i'll uh, be more willing to let them happen
1: i am hard pressed to think of a fun computer surprise i've ever had i've had fun internet surprises but that's not really like the computer is a conduit there but i've been surprised and delighted by things on the internet i don't think i've ever been surprised in a good way by something my computer has done
2: there are only two pieces of software i can think of that have ever surprised me in a positive way is one uh, of them calca no okay that might have to be number three okay i'll think about that calc is pretty cool sometimes i get surprised Um, by calc but not not that oh you do know how to do that git is definitely surprising sometimes it's just amazing what i mean it's just continually surprising what a great piece of software it is
1: Mm, i'm glad you have that feeling because i never have positive surprises with git
2: fair enough uh and the other one is everyone's favorite scryfall it's Mm. it constantly surprises Mm. me you know i do a search that's all uh split cards and then the whole search page is just the images are turned sideways yeah and it's like, oh that's wow a good one. that's just so such a nice detail or you know you click on more fun and there's a little link that says hey do you want the complicated regular expression to get every single card that gets discounted have this as a treat we love you scryfall thanks scryfall we've
1: said that i think on the past couple episodes we've had a little a little love note to scryfall in the middle but it's deserved really appreciate that service and piece of software
2: that is not a joke. That really, really no. is one of, the, <laughs> I mean, one of the only good websites. The fact that, yeah, it is, it, is, it is not just a pretty good website. It is one of the top two pieces of software as far as user experience that I have ever interacted with.
1: Yeah, I feel like I can agree with you confidently there. I don't generally like software. I use <laughs> software to accomplish goals. I use software to ends. I'm not like, oh, yeah, I get to interact with software. That's going to be fun. Pretty rare for me. We just got to be like the kids with TikTok and have fun making little videos and dances and stuff. The kids have fun with software.
2: If only they knew.
1: I had fun with Vine. Vine was fun. That's how you know I'm old. On this episode of Lucky Paper Radio, we're going to talk about why cube is hard. This is a topic Anthony has, and I can't wait to take him to task on what these words mean. But in order to get to that, we have to get through our listener-submitted Pack 1 Pick 1 Our pack this week comes to us from listener Cameron, who sends in his one-drop cube. This cube is, as you might expect, all one-drops. Not the first one-drop cube we've had on the show. I always love these environments, though. As a lover of low mana value spells and lots of decisions, I appreciate an environment where I can cast any of my spells on turn one, presumably. And this is no different. This is drafted in packs of 13 instead of packs of 15. So our pack one, pick one, comes from a pack made of 13 cards. Are you ready, Anthony? Do you need any further preparation?
2: I don't think so. I read all the release notes
1: for this cube. You do love reading release notes. The pack is Query and Ranger, Ash Baron's Skin Invasion, Wayward Guide Beast, Relic of Progenitus, Genju of the Spires, Regicide, Bright Climb Pathway, Weathered Wayfarer, Hangman, Opulent Palace, Firebolt, Bolt, and Tide Shaper. I'm realizing as I read that pack, I had not at all thought about what my pick is. So I hope you have some something to say about this while I do some thinking over here.
2: It's a really interesting format. So this cube is everything costs one effectively, with some like little exceptions. So my first thought is just like this cube is going to be extremely aggressive because it's focused on cheap cards. So the card that immediately jumps out to me is Wayward Guy Beast. You know where this is? This is a puzzle. It's this is a brand you got new. by it in regular limited. And you, oh my and you, goodness! You're having we never curiosity. talk about that again. Okay, fine. The the first time I had to quit Magic forever. So, I, Wayward Guide Beast really stands out to me because it the downside of it... So, this is a 1-mana 2-2 two, two with Trample Haste, so that's pretty great. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, return a land you control to, its, to your hand, its owner's hand. And obviously, the this sort of downside is highly mitigated in this format, because if I pick up a land, I'm pretty guaranteed to be able to cast a spell again just by playing another land. So, that really stands out. But then I'm thinking, just because everything is cheap, does that necessarily mean the format is going to be super aggressive? Because... Maybe not. Like, if you have cheap removal that can e- easily interact with your opponent's creatures, that doesn't actually dictate the way the format needs to play out. Right. And- I feel like we
1: learned that from Parker's Cube, in addition to other environments, but in Parker's Cube, it was very low curve. I think we all expected the games to be fast. And yet, games ended up being pretty grindy because when everyone's low to the curve, threats tend to line up pretty equally, and you end up in board stalls or things trading one for one, and then you're left trying to grind out a win.
2: Right. So I actually don't think I'm that excited about that. Instead, I think I'm most interested in Firebolt. Uh, just for being a two-for-one removal, I feel like that's going to be one of the real limitations of this format, is sort of figuring out how do I actually get more value out of my mana, more value for playing these cards that are underpowered because I'm just going to run <laughs> run out of cards. So Firebolt being an easy two-for-one, this is, you know, one mana sorcery to deal two damage to a, cr- a creature or a player, but five mana flashback. I think that's where I'm starting. I can also see the fixing in Opulent Palace or Ash Barons actually just being extremely valuable here.
1: I am drawn to anything that lets me spend more than one mana on out of this pack as the first things to jump out at me. So just to like run down all those cards, we can spend an extra mana to cycle our Relic of Regenitus. So one to cast, one to cycle. We can spend the mana to activate Genju of the Spires, which turns an enchanted mountain into a 6-1 red spirit to end of turn. We can spend mana with Weathered Wayfarer to search our library for lands and reveal it, as long as our opponent controls more lands than us. We can flashback Firebolt, and we can kick Tide Shaper. We also have Hangman here, which is a weird uncard. This is a black mana for a one-one. When it enters the battlefield, you secretly note a word with six to eight letters. So you're basically going to play a game of Hangman. Then you pay one mana, one generic mana, to Play a round of Hangman, so let your opponent guess a letter. If they name a letter that is not within the given word, you put a plus one, plus one counter on Hangman. So this offers the potential to grow over the course of the game. But whenever they fill out that word completely, you do have to sacrifice Hangman, which is not great. Those are all the cards that jump out at me. And I I agree with you. I don't expect this to be a particularly fast environment just because the spells are cheap. I expect there to be lots of things happening early turns of the game. But everyone's deck's going to be fast. Everyone's going to have a a lot of one-drops, a lot of creatures you can play on one-mana. I'm also taking Firebolt is uh, is the end of this story. I don't know how to evaluate fixing here because I like to take fixing pretty highly. And this could be kind of an environment where you could play a, a greedy deck, as it were. You could just play one drops in many colors. But I'm not sure what that's going to look like. And I'm really drawn to Firebolt as a two for one and a way to spend you know six mana over the course of, of two spells.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting question about fixing is... Uh, a couple fold actually. One of them is just we're not going to have any double pip spells, right? So that's going to make. I it, don't think so. I mean, there could be ways. something with a kicker of a color, or you know, something like True, that yeah, that's effectively some double pip. Repeatable acti- activated abilities, but in general, yeah, I'm going to be able to cast most of my spells if I with have a single source. You know, yeah, right? If I have my one land hand in a two color deck, presumably that means I'm still going to be able to cast half of those spells in my hand, which is not that bad. Yeah. I think the biggest question I actually have about Firebolt is. I don't know, still this is going to be low curving, so presumably I don't want a huge number of lands in my deck. Right. Which again, that kind of makes me think I do want the fixing, because if I'm trying to run a low lo- land count,
1: fixing becomes I'm even kind more of talking important.
2: myself into it, yeah. And the other issue with Fireball is, so if I'm doing that, am I even going to want my deck to get to five mana? I mean, I, I like that as an option. It's definitely going to be powerful, but are there going to be games where it's just like, well, I'd rather just sacrifice lands to some ability, uh, which we definitely yeah. see some of in this in this deck.
1: Yeah, if we have options to sacrifice lands, that's one thing, but I do think... Just the way that magic is built, where you play a land a turn and you have 20 life and cards are developed the way they are and balanced the way they are. I think even in a cube with lots of one drops, there's going to be plenty of games that go till you have five lands in play. Now, that's notwithstanding, perhaps there could be lots of ways in this environment to use your lands in other ways. Sacrifice them, bounce it back to your hand, whatever. And that might offset that, but absent your deck being about that to some degree, you know, and we do see Genju of the Spires here as well, which is a similar thing. Turn your land into a creature, which will... Eventually die. It's, got, it's a six one, so it's not going to stay alive forever. I still like Firebolt though, partially because even if I only cast the front side of it, a shock is what well, basically going to be a one mana vindicate here, right? I mean, what's right. what's one mana that's not going to die to two damage? Probably not a whole
2: lot of things. Possibly Hangman. Possibly Hangman. That is true. Hangman. I, we we could be wrong, and Hangman could just be like an absolute bomb in this in this set. I think the card's pretty
1: good. I don't know if it's a bomb. I honestly, the way I feel about a lot of one cards, is I just don't want to play with it.
2: I don't. Yeah, I'm I don't want to. Kind of there too.
1: I don't like. I, I enjoy Magic because I like to play games. I like to try and win. I like to try and maximize my skill, and so like I take Hangman. I foresee, I foresee myself googling before the match, like best Hangman words, six to eight letters, and like you know, memorizing a few of them, and like trying to optimize this. And I'm just not interested in that. It seems like not the kind of game I want to play. So. It might be the pick, but I'm not taking it.
2: It definitely just sort of breaks you out. The, the key thing is that any player can activate it to try and get that game over with to kill the hangman. And if I'm playing against it, just trying to have to do this brand new kind of math, like I'm used to evaluating board states and can I attack? Should I wait to block? Should I keep up maintenance and speed removal? Like I have this whole collection of heuristics going on. And then to have this other wrench of, Okay, well, now I have to evaluate, should I try and advance this game of hangman? Like, how quickly? Like, what's the clock on this hangman? <laughs> yeah. Uh, really just kind of breaks me out of that whole collection of heuristics. So a
1: Jazzy's only five letters. <laughs> trying to think of what a good hangman word would be.
2: Quixotic? Uh, so, I'm going to Google all the That's good... I'm going to Google right? all the best hangman words before the match so that if, no, you, play, eight if you play a hangman, I know what I should start guessing.
1: Quixotic is eight letters, but it does have three vowels, which I feel like makes it worse.
2: If you have the best hangman word, let us know.
1: Yeah. Off the top of the dome, I'm going to say Quixotic is what I'm naming with Hangman. And just like that, Anthony, we're not talking about magic on our Magic podcast. The, the
2: glory of uncards.
1: <laughs> Thank you to Cameron for sending in the pack. We're both on Firebolt. My runner up probably just Ash Barons.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of talking myself into Ash Barons.
1: Mostly because Firebolt is good, but it's not like incredible. And there's nothing else in this pack that says this is a good enough card that I'm willing to like commit to something for it. Firebolt's 2 for one removal. The front end's really strong, so I'm going to take Firebolt. If that wasn't here, I would just take Ash Bear and see what the next couple of packs had for me. Maybe something else is going to jump out at me. I just want that flexible card I'm going to play pretty much no matter what my deck is. Okay, Anthony, your hypothesis is that cube is hard. Counterpoint, cube is easy. Get good scrub if you considered that.
2: So, my question was not
1: Is cube hard? Uh, No, no, not question. I said hypothesis. My hypothesis? Is that cube is hard. And I'm saying maybe you're wrong. Maybe cube is easy and you're just not good at it.
2: Okay. That's a separate hypothesis. (laughs) And I don't have a lot of evidence to the contrary. It's hard to actually know how good one
1: is at playing cubes in general because it is such a different thing to different people.
2: Definitely true. So, what I was wondering about, though, is this came up a couple weeks ago and we had Parker on the podcast. Shout out to Parker. We we were describing this cube as being particularly hard, and then we kind of thought to ourselves, well, uh, or not to ourselves, to you, the listener, <laughs> what does that even mean? Uh, because really, Magic is a two-player game, so for it to be hard is almost nonsensical because I'm playing against an opponent, and if right. they are of the same skill level, like that's the only thing that matters. So, th- is there actually a way to describe a cube, or any two-player competitive game as being hard.
1: Right. Just to put it in very dumb terms, free soloing El Capitan is difficult. It is hard. <laughs> Most people can't do it. It takes a lifetime of training to do that. Even rounding a track in a Formula One car is hard. Most people would just crash. They wouldn't be able to do the thing. They don't have the dexterity or the skills or the knowledge to do it. Magic, if you know the rules, it is a zero-sum game. There's going to be eight people drafting. You're going to have a 3-0. You're going to have a couple 2-1s, a couple 1-2s, an 0 There's no way to look at draft of Cube A and draft of Cube B and objectively say Cube A is harder to play, harder to draft than Cube B. Or is there, Anthony?
2: Right. Or maybe to put it another way, if we're playing basketball, a competitive game, right? Yeah. If you and I are playing basketball, like, this is a really really (laughs) totally believable hypothetical right. We're going to try and do sports metaphors. Uh, I'm going to slam dunk you right into the outfield, baby. (laughs) On the other hand, we could say free throws are hard. Like, doing 12 free throws in a row is a challenging thing, and we can measure that to other kinds of experiences. Right. But as soon as you introduce another player, it's no longer hard because I don't need to get a certain amount of points. I just need to get more points than you.
1: Right. Like, you, you can't say playing basketball is hard objectively because playing basketball against a four-year-old is not hard. Any adult would win.
2: <laughs> and playing cube against a four-year-old.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, equally. I mean, they'd probably destroy the cards. i get very anxious. I might be off my game. You never know.
2: All right, so do we agree that there's not really a way to call a cube hard in that sense?
1: Well, I don't want to preempt where I think you're going with this. But, yes, in that sense, I don't think we can say a cube is hard or easy Because it is a zero-sum game, and it's all relative. So it depends on your opponents. It depends on their knowledge and skill. I think maybe where you're going to go with this, something I think about a lot is I think about the relative ease or difficulty of a task or a game, playing a game, in terms of how much do I have to know before I can make game decisions instead of just making understanding the rules decisions. So. I play a lot of board games, too, in addition to Magic. Some of them are harder to learn than other board games, right? And board games are all zero-sum. We're all sitting down at a table. Someone's going to win. Everyone else is going to lose. But Terraforming Mars is a much more difficult game to play than Carcassonne. And it's more difficult to me because what you have to learn to get over the hump of, like, I understand the strategic implications of my decisions is a lot higher. You have to learn a lot more before you understand what your decisions mean and can make those decisions with any kind of strategic backing to them.
2: Yeah, exactly. So if we stick with our basketball metaphor, sure, you and I can go into the court and technically try and play basketball, but if you neither- subscribe to our Patreon <laughs> to see us
1: play basketball together.
2: If neither of us can dribble, a game of basketball will not happen, right?
1: Yeah. It's going to be really hard if you can't dribble.
2: Or, you know, if if I physically cannot throw the ball high enough to get to the (laughs) net at all, it doesn't matter, you know, if my aim is a little bit off, so I have a very low chance of making a basket. I have a zero chance. Yeah,
1: a better example, like if we were trying to race Formula One cards or play water polo, we might just both drown. Oh, oh, man, you already already usurped
2: the water polo reference. So, yeah, I think what what you're saying is exactly right, that there is this other aspect to the game, which I would propose the language calling it a competency floor. We have to be competent enough to be able to actually just play the game at all. And if we don't reach that point, then we can't play the game. So there is a meaningful way to describe an experience as hard.
1: I like this concept. I don't know if the term competency does it for me, because I really do think it's just like a knowledge thing. Like, you can still be completely incompetent at playing the game, but if you are at least thinking about, okay... I understand that I'm managing these resources and I know that this decision I make has strategic importance rather than like when someone learns a new board game or magic for the first time, they're just like, can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? Can I tap this land and cast a spell now? Is that even possible? Like they're still exploring just the very basic foundations of like, what actions can I take? And I think there's a step where you understand those enough that you're making game actions that are legal and you're thinking about what they do, but you're still completely incompetent at playing the game. You wouldn't call yourself a competent player. You're you understand the rules maybe to a competent degree, but I, I don't know. I think it was a big period of time where I was, by my definition, an incompetent magic player. But I understood the rules. I like knew what when I could cast spells and I could play land to turn and all that kind of stuff.
2: Right, but I, th- I think that is actually the barrier that I'm I'm trying to point out. Like, okay.
1: so it, you, literally... aside, whatever we call it, we're talking about that floor where you you know the rules and you understand that you're making game actions you're well, no no no
2: I, I think that what you're saying is well you can still understand the rules and be competent but still not be making strategic decisions I still think you're playing the game when you're in that space like when you're below the point where you're really making good I guess you define strategic.
1: playing a game what is yeah. what is playing a game Anthony like <laughs> what constitutes me playing a game versus
2: I mean I mean for me it really is that that level of you know you can play a land per turn you know you tap the lands mm-hmm. to cast creatures and so two people that are even if they are not at the point where they are making meaningful strategic decisions they can still play a game against each other. It's not like, well, here, if I hand you a stack of magic cards you've never played before, and I say, play a game of magic against somebody, you would just not know So you're defining
1: just playing the game as like you are able to begin a game, follow the rules for the most part, and see the game through to a conclusion and determine a winner. Right. Even if you are both so inexperienced that you feel like you don't necessarily have control over who wins or loses. It's just kind of luck of the draw. Like, that is not an important part of playing a game to you. It's just like, we were able to follow the rules within this gaming system and come to a outcome, come to an actual right. logical end.
2: But I, th- I think you're right, actually, that all along that spectrum, like w- whatever this point is, it is not a hard line. Like we're not going to be able to put a of measure not, on it yeah. and say, like, this is a game that is this hard because you have to be this a- able to actually start playing the game uh, in a meaningful way. It's it's going to be blurry. So we can use these ideas to like talk about. Are we increasing or decreasing that floor? But we can't, you know, obviously put some absolute value. But, but I do think even in that space between where you are... Because by that definition, I think almost every cube to any kind of even
1: remotely experienced magic player, like everyone hits that competency floor immediately. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody can play a cube if you know how to play magic. Like right?
2: That's kind of where I'm landing You yet. take
1: a card, you put it in your deck, you play the cards, even if your deck is completely non-functional. You know, in an extreme example, we're talking about the degenerate micro cube. And you just draft like a mono blue deck with like no win conditions, like, because you don't know what this environment's about at all. You can still physically do it. You can follow the rules right. of the game. You can go 03. You can play a draft of the Diderot Microcube. You've, you've hit that competency floor.
2: And I guess maybe it is more just about like what level of competency actually creates a satisfying experience, which is going to be different to each player. I really enjoy... Yeah, um, I hate being bad at things. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm an awful,
1: awful learner and an awful beginner. It's well, one of my more worst ability, traits. I think
2: you really value just having agency in the game and feel like you're making... Yeah, I'm a control freak. You. you can just say it. That's fine. No, I, th- I think that the words I said were, <laughs> were the ones I meant. Okay. You're also a control freak, but that's separate. <laughs> that's a separate thing? Okay, good. But I really appreciate uh, Mark Rosewater on one of his episodes of Drive to Work talks you about... You like Mark Rosewater? I do. The I,
1: head designer of magic. You think
2: he's like smart Is guy? he still? Is he still the... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Smart guy. He talks about tic-tac-toe and how too many players it is, you know, once, once you understand the rules, it is a non-game because you just play through the system in the way that you will deterministically not lose the game if you follow the system. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that, you can still be playing the game because you feel like you're making decisions, even if those decisions aren't really meaningful.
1: And that's all of us when it comes to magic.
2: And that's, well, I think that that's just why it's it's worth saying, like, once you are at this level of competency and you can play your lands, you can tap your lands and cast spells, it's really up to the, the taste of each individual to know, are they having enough agency to feel like they are having a, a valuable experience? Right. So I think that's one thing that when we talk about cubes being hard, what we mean is, what is that floor for having enough understanding of the environment? For a player to feel like they have, you know, whatever level of agency means they're going to have a positive experience. Do you think that's...
1: Yeah, yeah, but that definition is going to be really useless really quickly because, to your point, if everyone has a different amount of competency they want to feel before they're going to be happy, how can we possibly take that into consideration at all as cube designers?
2: Well, I think we could still talk about it again in relative terms. Like We could look at two cubes and look at particular aspects and say, well, this one has a lot more complexity that is not going to be understood by somebody So, I mean, yeah, you have to at some point say, like, this is the level of agency that a particular player would want to have. And then Mm -hmm. comparatively, if we say, well, that particular level of, of agency is going to be harder to achieve in this cube than in another. Okay. Hit me with that, then. Uh, so I mean I think one of the the biggest most obvious things is just complexity. The more complexity, got to define that term
1: too. We got we're we're, we're doing a big like uh, this is a society. We don't a have semantics. to. We don't
2: have to. We could just take complexity I, at face value. I think we do.
1: What what is complexity in a cube?
2: Is it just numbers of rules on cards? I mean, it, what is it? I, so I think it is actually two things. One is just the cognitive complexity of. Can you read and understand what these cards do? Mm-hmm. The other is the strategic complexity of how do you make choices during the game and also during the draft, how do you put these two cards together? Uh, maybe coming around to your, like, the, these two levels of competency of, like, you can take base actions and you understand you the have rules to a
1: fundamental level versus right, you, you are thinking like, about your decisions as strategic game actions, which to me is almost, that's kind of what playing a game is. Like, right. I think if you're following the rules, but you don't, You're not thinking about whether it's better to play this card or this card on this turn. You're just kind of casting one of them because you know the rules permit it. I'm not sure you're really playing a game by a meaningful definition. Like, yeah, you are playing through this system of rules, but you're kind of just taking arbitrary actions because you don't know any better yet.
2: So wherever we're like landing on that spectrum of what the like key anchor point is, and maybe I think you might be right. It might be on the higher end that is really relevant when it comes to cube because we're not necessarily building cubes for people that are just excited to understand they can play lands although although so i think a lot of it has to do with like literally the amount of text on cards can the players understand this but also the way that they interact so if if i'm putting a a person who is competent at playing magic they could sit down do a draft of Strixhaven or whatever the new limited set is if i give them a packet and a cube and they see a pester bite, we don't expect them to be able to read that and understand oh this is, this is one half of a win the game if, card if i happen to see a card in the future that say tapped to create a copy of a creature i could win the game with these like you need this outside knowledge and i think that like extra outside knowledge raises that floor uh to a huge degree
1: now are you talking only about outside knowledge from magic broadly or are you just talking about outside knowledge in terms of i know what the card pool is at this cube and i know it does or does not have split between in addition to pastor
2: i think both are relevant that's an interesting point how actually i think a cube can when you're talking about a particular audience actually be more complex in a way or or at least you know more challenging it can be harder if it just isn't doing the conventional thing sure
1: yeah certainly if you are not able to borrow from play patterns and heuristics you've learned in other types of magic and apply them directly to this environment and still have success if it's actually challenging you to think about new combinations of cards then that's definitely the case and that example you gave of pest and might and splinter twin is a very stark extreme example but the same is true for basically every magic card right like if you don't know to combine one mana mana dorks with good three and four drops so you don't know how to combine counter spells and creatures with flash you don't know how to combine dreadhorde arcanist and cheap spells or dreadhorde arcanist and ways to pump its power that is kind of what magic is on a on a big grayscale spectrum right
2: totally so it's a or little is bit... it not
1: a grayscale cell I mean, it's a serious question is that not a grayscale? spectrum but is, is the pestermite and splinter twin thing actually to you fundamentally different than just understanding how a ramp deck works understanding how a flash deck works understanding that with every burn spell, every other burn spell in your deck gets a little better because you can just burn your opponent out. Like, are those different kinds of concepts to you, or is that actually the same
2: thing? No, I, th- I think in this specific case, like those concepts are definitely two things on the same spectrum. Where one is very, you know, clear, mm-hmm. explicit. It's about two specific cards, and the other is, you know, it involves lots of cards and uh, thinking about a whole deck. But like in both cases, also you still want to think about how are you building a deck holistically. So it does have that complexity mm-hmm. of needing to. Think about this, like, have all this outside knowledge and think about things in a larger system in order to play at this level of competency that I think most people coming to play a cube want to be at. Right. Because
1: if you just took the cards in a pack in a vacuum and said, what's the best card? You would never choose Pestermite out of any kind of powered or, like, you know, vintage cube because on its face, it's a three mana two one that enters the battlefield and taps or untaps something. It doesn't do anything compared to, <laughs> like... It's just, it's just not... It's on, on raw power level in terms of, like, if you're teaching a new player the game and then explain here's a pack of cards, this is it's got, what Pestermite does. It's got it four mana planeswalkers, it's got one mana removal spells, it's got cheap ramp, it's got whatever, and it has Pestermite, you would never choose that card in a vacuum. And so the point is that there is this relative context, which is very important, which kind of informs all the cards, but to a different degree.
2: Right. So how do you feel about this idea of the challenge in just, do you have enough knowledge, whether that's specific knowledge about the game or specific knowledge about this cube or this environment, can make a thing more challenging in this one sense?
1: Yeah, I think it's very abstract and fluffy. I would love to like get it somewhere concrete where we can say to our listeners, if you're considering your cube is too complicated, do this, or vice versa. Or help them decide whether they would want a difficult-to-play cube or not.
2: That's fair. Maybe um, you'll
1: get there. Maybe you won't. Maybe it's a fully abstract episode. We'll find I out. I think
2: it's going to be pretty abstract, but I think there are some other concrete examples. Uh, another one that we've touched on a couple times is this idea that sort of just the, the disparity of similar effects can actually add a lot of complexity. So if you have a card that cares about whenever you cast a spell versus a card that cares about whenever you cast a instant or sorcery versus yeah. whenever you draw your second card a turn and a lot there's like a lot of overlap between uh, cantrips and things like that each of those individual cards can be very simple. There might not be any explicit interactions between the cards that are causing complexity, but the fact that there's a lot of nuance and uniqueness in the cards can add a lot of complexity.
1: Now, are you strictly talking about in-game complexity? Like, I can't keep track of all my triggers? Or do you also mean on a higher level, like, thinking about drafting my deck? Because I agree with you, like, I think it does lead to complexity. I mean, on stream last Friday, I asked you what you did on your scry from sleight of hand. There is no scry on sleight of hand, but I got confused with all the other one mana cantrips. But I don't think it actually affects the higher level complexity I'm primarily interested in cultivating, which is like drafting a cohesive deck. The fact that sleight of hand is interchangeable with opt or ponder or Preordained to some degree is I think what makes that possible in a complicated environment. Because you can say like, yeah, I want some cantrips because they are good for all of my delve spells, they're good for all of my spells matter triggers, they're good for all these other things, they're good for just finding lands and, you know, making my deck efficient and, and reliable. And I don't actually think that that kind of complexity affects the kind of drafting on that level. Though it does definitely affect the, like, in-game, oops, I forgot that Magecraft triggers on copying spells as well as casting them, right. and now I forgot a trigger or
2: something. I, I think it could definitely be both. I agree that it that kind of complexity is a bigger deal in gameplay than during a draft. But it can come up, you know, if you're drafting and you're sort of shortcutting, oh, you know, I have a removal spell in my Chupacabra and my Shriek Maw, and you're sort of heuristic, you've sort of shortcutted that to, I have a bunch of removal spells, and then you see a prowess creature, and then you get to the end of the draft and you realize, well, I actually have many fewer ways to trigger prowess uh, than I thought I did, that I've definitely had those kinds of draft experiences where a card is much less uh, effective in a deck than I expected it to be because of heuristics.
1: That is something I really try and minimize. I think a- another more concrete example of that is, like, you have a bunch of removal in your deck, some of it's Doomblades, and your opponent has black creatures, and you're like, well, crap. Right. I thought I had a bunch of removal, and I do, but except I don't some of the time, depending on what my opponent plays, which can be very tilting, because you're like, I drafted a good deck, a good control deck, with a good mixture of cantrips and removal and counter spells and board wipes and game-ending threats, but I just got punished because my opponent happened to play creatures I couldn't remove with my specific removal spells, which... That does come up, for sure. And I, I know there are people out there that really like cards like Strafe and Strafe and Lance, You know, all these kinds of spells that are powerful, and you objectively should put them in your deck because most of the time they work really well, but sometimes you're just going to whiff. And when you have that in combination with regular burn spells, regular removal spells that don't whiff on those kinds of things, it can be very tilting. I mean, I myself run many variations of quote-unquote Doomblade. Not Doomblade itself, but I have Go for the Throne, I have Heartless Act, I have Cast Down, I always get cast down and cast out confused. Which one's the enchantment and which one's the actual... I believe
2: cast out is the white one. Great.
1: I have cast down. And that's definitely a point of complexity that I feel like is not... Again, doesn't really affect your draft decisions, but can totally come up in game and you're like, well, crap.
2: So we're talking a lot about complexity because I think that relates a lot to it because you know, the more complexity, the more you have to learn that's going to raise the ceiling on how much you have to understand, whether that's, you know, in the moment reading the cards and understanding what they do or just having that outside knowledge of already knowing what they do. Um, But I think it is important to note that complexity doesn't necessarily, I think, always have to uh, raise the challenge of an experience. Specifically, I I would think about Uh, environments like a lot of retail limited environments where the more complex things tend to be on the more powerful things for a lot of reasons about the way that magic is designed and the result is very often you see a huge bomb with a wall of text but you say well at its base this is a like four mana four four flyer with upside like Mm -hmm. sure you don't have to actually digest all of that to play competently and i think that doesn't apply as much to cube where i think players are often just like like complexity is a goal to add more variety in gameplay and more interesting decisions. So I think we do just see a lot of more even and higher complexity across the board.
1: That's maybe an obvious thing we should just say, so it's been said. But I think a huge part of why we and everyone else that likes Magic likes Magic is because it's hugely difficult. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like if, if Magic were easy, if it were easy to draft a cube, then it wouldn't be fun. The whole point of it is that it's in fact so difficult that we spend our entire magic lives arguing with each other over exactly the right way to do this thing that we're all trying to do right the last cut for this deck what's the play in this situation what's the pick in this pack like it's difficult because and that's what makes it interesting like at its core I feel like magic is a game that embraces this complexity in order to make an environment where there can be lots of informed but differing opinions and that's part of the fun of the game you get to talk with your friends about your different opinions about things
2: Totally. And that's actually exactly sort of the, the next concept that I wanted to propose. So if we have this sort of form of you have to be, uh, you know, understand this much, do this much like learning and, and overcome this much challenge in order to play a thing competently. There's also this other number, which is what is the degree of mastery that you can achieve in this environment? And how high is that ceiling that you can continue to put more effort? So my example here would be chess has this extremely high ceiling of mastery where you can play your entire life and from what appears to be a fairly simple game continue to grow and improve and find new strategies to beat your opponent again in this zero-sum game where there's not necessarily a a concrete idea of a hard experience Right, like chess is not
1: objectively hard right because if you know the rules it's no easier or harder than playing tic-tac-toe or checkers right it's just a matter of knowing the rules but it is extraordinarily difficult to master much harder than right. tic-tac-toe and much harder than checkers
2: yeah checkers is a perfect example where checkers at once seemed like it was about as had the same depth of play as chess but it turns out at some point checkers was just solved they figured out the this one is one game. of my favorite
1: stories i know you and i talked about it a bunch but for our listeners that don't know this like there used to be i want to say this was like the beginning of the 20th century early 1900s there was competitive grandmaster level checkers play where you'd have people that were traveling the world, devoting their lives to this game, learning it, mastering it, keeping track of their ELO or whatever. And basically there was like one year where there was like the Grandmaster Checkers Tournament and the top two players just drew like 27 games in a row, just kept ending in a draw. And they look back at the actual game logs and most of those games were exactly the same game. (laughs) Like the players were not actually doing anything different. It was the same game, just mirrored or not mirrored. And it was because these two players had gotten good enough that they just kind of they had figured out how to play checkers the same way that most adults do to play tic-tac-toe. They were like, exactly, yeah, I'm not yeah. going to lose. And that's hard to get to. But once humans got there, it was kind of like, well, I guess this is over as a competitive thing to be mastered because we kind of did it. And now anyone else that gets to that level is just going to tie with everyone else at that level for the rest of time, unless someone makes a boneheaded mistake or a comparatively boneheaded mistake. I mean, obviously anybody that's not a grandmaster at checkers would not consider it a boneheaded mistake. But, But yeah, it's really interesting to me that like, and then just, competitive checkers was kind of over that was it because right we they just got there you know
2: and i think that those two sort of degenerate states are kind of the same like whether both players are not at the level where they can play competently so there's just not a game there's also not a game if both players are above that mastery ceiling and just can always make the correct single correct decision uh and are no longer actually having agency In in the same way Players don't have agency outside of this bounds of of between your competency floor and your mastery ceiling, if you'll go along with my terms. I think it might be more helpful to me. Can you think of an example where the competency floor is really,
1: really high, like the highest competency floor level of a game or experience you can can think of?
2: Basketball where the basket is really high.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, like, because I think we have good examples, right? Like Tic-Tac-Toe, great example of a game that once you learn it, it's not a game anymore. And checkers is like that, but times 50,000 or whatever. Chess is theoretically like that, but will we ever actually manage to solve it? Probably not with our our brain power Uh, is, is everything I've read, basically. We haven't even been able to build a computer that can solve it yet. So that one's, you know, much, much more complicated. But what's a game that's so complicated where this competency floor comes in? Because I'm still struggling with that idea where it's like... I
2: mean, I think it comes in in literally every game. Like, you need to understand how all of the chess pieces move to play a game of chess. Okay, but how
1: does it come in as a cube designer? Because we're most of us are not designing cubes for people that don't have that competency floor in terms of understanding the rules of magic.
2: I think you're right. So I, th- I think that the the second level is actually more relevant just to, to sort of think about most players are trying to design to having as high as sort of mastery ceiling as possible to have as much complexity right. and deck diversity that it is not a solved game. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, and I think that's an important part to make explicit about what that high ceiling means. The high ceiling means that when you're looking at a pack one pick one, there should not be a right answer, right? right? Like if everyone agrees on the right answer, then you that's one of the 500 decisions that go into a draft and matches of games that everyone agrees is solved. And when you get to the point where all 45 of your picks and all of your deck building decisions and all of your gameplay decisions are solved, then your format is solved. And of course, Magic has so much built-in complexity that we're nowhere near that, but that is the spectrum we're on, right? Right.
2: So I think people think much less about this other side of the spectrum, but I do think it's relevant. I think especially, you know, just because it comes up in conversations. If someone, if you're trying to introduce people to your cube community, if you're trying to get them to draft, they might just be like, well, that cube seems hard. (laughs) I don't want to draft that. So actually just having some terminology and some like mental model for thinking about like, what might this player be perceiving as this being hard? And if it is one of your values to, make your cube more accessible to a broader range of players, then that is part of the the sort of design experience, whether or not that is a key part for most cube designers. Mm-hmm. Which, to your point, I, I think, yeah, the, the sort of floor is much less relevant to most cube designers. Um, I will say it is definitely something, without having these terms, that I have thought about since the beginning of my own, you know, my primary cube, is trying to make it as accessible to players. You know, obviously I'm not going to say here is this player that has just learned magic yesterday. I want them to be able to play it. But if I can lower I mean, that they bar... they should be able
1: to play it by the competency standard sure. you've set. Like, you can make 45 picks, put a deck together with two colors or whatever, cast and spells. Right.
2: So, this more challenging to pin down space where they feel agency and they feel like they are making decisions and not just taking random game actions. There's another question there, which is not just how they feel, but the
1: question would be... How successful is a player likely to be in terms of winning if they do just that? They just learned how to draft yesterday. Their card evaluation skills are minimal. They basically pick two colors, draft those cards of those colors, put them in a deck, cast them on curve. How likely are they to actually have success in that environment? Does that also kind of come into play in the 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 compl- complexity and difficulty of playing that environment, you think?
2: I think it does. But really, I think that that sort of option for a, a lesser player... Well, I guess we should say, if that player is also playing other players in the cube of their same skill level, then definitely they should have a chance to win. It's a separate question of can they also, by, you know, following the rules, following what is sort of obvious in the system, actually beat a player that is much more skilled. Right. That's kind of a separate issue, which is uh, variance.
1: Is that just variance, though? Because I don't think it is just variance. I think it comes back to that episode of Drive to Work, I think it was, with Brian David Marshall, where he was talking about his fondness for the old days of Magic where cards were bad because... I think it was actually uh, limited resources. Limited resources, you're right. Thank you. And he was basically saying that one thing he likes about that era of magic is that in some ways it felt more difficult because you had to be good enough to know which were the good and bad cards and which cards to put in your deck or not. And a worse player would just have put all the blue and red cards in their deck, but actually a third of them are really awful and they didn't even realize it. And so in some ways, I think lots of cubes are actually easier than retail limited environments in the sense that you are much more likely to be successful to draft a functional deck if you just sit down, pick cards that are wrong color, put them in a deck and play. Because all the cards are probably within a narrower power level band. They're probably all good. There's no bad cards. And that's not the kind of complexity I think most cube designers are aiming for. So that's like a different layer of complexity to kind of tease out of this, I think.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I would maybe think of what you just said as saying. If if the cube is more streamlined, like a lot of cubes are, it takes less variance for the less skilled player to overcome that skill gap. Because I cube think it does still come variance. down to to some degree of variance. Well, it, like it always does, right? If there I mean, was every zero game... variance, then you know uh, I would lose to LSV every single time, right? Right. If there was 100. Except for maybe variance, one of your cubes, where he didn't know anything about. Uh, sure. But that would be weird. I still would be shocked if I ever. Maybe wanted, if I maybe ever if, if took you and LSV
1: drafted the turbo cube, but you didn't tell him about the two man <laughs> discount until until draft was over. Maybe then you could get. By them. the way. <laughs> there is a complexity people want to cultivate which is like the high skill ceiling mastery but i think that's that gets convoluted i think a lot of times with other kinds of complexity one of them just being that if some of the cards are bad then there is it's more difficult to get over that like i guess what i'm saying is i feel like there's a curve to the skill of a player and their success in an environment and it's not a linear curve it's not like the more skilled and experienced you are with the environment the more knowledgeable that your skill goes up kind of you know in a straight line i feel like there might be like a hump in the beginning where it's like ah, I learned the card pool of this environment. I learned that these are the viable archetypes. I learned that there is Splinter Twin for this mite, And like, I got the basics. And then there could be like a, not a valley, but like, you know, a plateau and then like another big spike or something. And I think a lot of those kinds of complexity questions, the ones that like Brian, David Marshall was getting at were like, in the heydays of Magic before we had limited resources and 17 lands and the internet and everybody was talking about everything all the time and everything was immediately solved, that kind of complexity would not be fun today. Like I I appreciate Brian David Marshall's nostalgia for it and the the place it had in Magic's history. But if they just had a if half the cards in limited packs were just D's and Fs, everyone would know that by day three of the limited environment. Like that would be the first hump everyone would get over. And you would only be at a disadvantage if you were like first time drafting that environment, not paying attention at all, and like didn't know that these cards were not that great. And then once everyone knew that, now there's a new skill curve that everyone's kind of working on. But you would get over that big hump really quickly. And I think at least for me, the kind of, like, skill master I want in my cube is, like, yeah, anyone that can play Magic that knows the rules can play my cube. I don't want the little, like, hidden landmines of, yes, this this cube does have Splinter Twin and Pestermite, or this cube does have a more esoteric combo, like Flash and World Spine Worm, maybe, that not everyone knows. I don't want those little landmines. I want all of the cards to be able to be evaluated on the same tempo value axis. But then I want there to be, like, a very long climb of, like, what are the actual viable decks? And to be clear, I am not at the top of that mountain. I do not know the best way to draft my own environment. And that's one of the paradoxes of being a cube designer is I'm responsible ostensibly as the designer of the environment for making decisions about what's included, what's excluded, what the curve looks like, all these kinds of things, the density of removal, that kind of stuff. But I don't know the objectively best way to draft my own environment. And so I'm making these kind of informed guesses and reckons about how I think all want things to play. But I don't know for a fact and I don't think any cube designer does.
2: Yeah, that's definitely true. But is that a way that you evaluate success for your own cube is when you see that there is a high curve, like a high ceiling of mastery that players are haven't hit that ceiling yet? Yeah, for sure. One of my biggest metrics for my own cube is I want
1: people to be surprised by stuff in most drafts. I want to be surprised by things that are successful or unsuccessful. I want my players to be Back surprised to by... Th- huh? Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't like bad surprises. And, <laughs> and I don't want to be surprised in a bad way by something I drafted not doing well, obviously. But as a cube designer, I don't want my cube to be a known quantity. I've said on the show before that I value including cards that I know that players in our immediate playgroup vastly disagree on. Some players are like, this is a staple. It's the most important card in this archetype. Other players are like, that's unplayable. Those are the cards I want to put in my cube so that they get played more until the group kind of decides that it's one way or the other, or it's not. Maybe it's somewhere in between and everyone was a little bit too extreme. That, I think, is a great thing for the environment. And so I'm happy every time that a draft plays out unexpectedly and everyone's like, huh, I feel like I learned something about what this environment can or can't be that I didn't know before I sat down to play.
2: All right, so I had one other idea for, you know, when someone says, oh, this cube is hard, one other thing that maybe they mean, which is this sort of less pinned down idea of exertion. And what I mean by that is just it is more work to get the same results. It is extremely taxing. Here's where I'll mention water polo, because I think water polo, if you are able to swim, is kind of an easy game. Both players just have to be able to to drive water, get ball into the net. The net's pretty big. But... Even when you're playing this zero-sum game and it is not technically hard or easy because it is up to the skill of your opponent, it is extremely exhausting and taxing to tread water constantly. Yeah. And I feel like this applies in Magic to a lot of cubes. And the one that stands out most to me is your Degenerate Microcube. I thought you were going to mention that. Where (laughs) you have almost complete information or like this complex statistical information about the small number of cards your opponent has in their hand, their deck, their graveyard. And you have to think if you want to like play competently, if you want to overcome that competency floor, I think most players would be equipped to do it after a certain point, but it still takes a tremendous amount of effort to do that work and figure out, can I use my one removal spell here? Or is right. there another way I have to navigate the situation because I'm going to need it for the actual threat that's coming two turns from now.
1: Yeah. It's a lot more like some board states in normal magic are puzzle like, where it's like, okay, there's a lot of moving pieces. I got to figure out exactly how I can eke out these amounts of damage or whatever. But a lot of magic is playing to these clouds of unknown probabilities where you're like, well, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few turns, but I know that I'm the more aggressive deck, so I should really try and get it as much damage as I can early, and then we'll find out what happens when my, I draw some more cards, my opponent does some stuff. We'll see what they do. I don't know what it could be, right? Because it could be a lot of different things. And in the dinner micro cube, that is not the way the game plays. I, I've, I've gotten a big discussion on the Discord this week about how I actually don't think tempo... The concept we've talked about to the end in the show, and I'm sure we'll return to many times, applies at all to the degenerate microcube, in the way it applies to other magic sequencing. The way that sequencing matters in other magic games is like totally different in the degenerate microcube. All that matters is that your spells line up correctly against your opponent's spells, right? Like you have the right, right answers for their threats, you have the right threats for their answers. You're able to like deploy them at the right moments and everything else is irrelevant. Like, you can just spend many turns doing nothing. That doesn't matter as long as you have the turn where you win the game immediately because you set up for it properly.
2: Right. I mean, perfect example. In the last draft we did, I remember we spent four turns with my opponent having both Thespian Stage and Dark Depths in play, Yeah. but they knew I had the one Removal spell, but I knew I couldn't do anything. But every turn was extremely taxing because we both had to think through, okay, I draw my card. Can I do anything yet? What are all the possibilities? I know they have this one Removal spell, so I'm going to need to be able to actually draw a second threat to be able to win the game. And that was taxing. There's a but surprising happened.
1: There's a surprising amount of games of the Degenerate Micro cube where if you were watching them, you would think that players were idiots. <laughs> <laughs> like, this person's just got Thespian Stage Dark Depths in play. Or like, I have a couple of times passed up the opportunity to turn one channel on the play because, like, Channel Ember Cool on the play because I know that my opponent has free counter magic in their hand. And I know they know that I have channel and fast mana in my deck. And so they can't really keep an opening hand without free counter magic. And so I have to wait until I can sequence a couple of other things to draw counter spells or some hand hate or something in the same turn as my channel, if I ever have any hope for it resolving. And it does end up being this very different experience that you don't like, which is fine, Uh, (laughs) but it is very taxing. What I like, I'll say just to defend that environment briefly, what I do like about it is that it gets immediately to the taxing point. To me, I think a lot of formats end up being similarly taxing, but you gotta play through ten turns of trivial doesn't really matter what you do, BS, where it's like, I cast my spells on curve, whatever, but like, but it's not a fast environment. Nobody's gonna get their opponent dead. Then you get to this big complicated board stall, and then it becomes this puzzle where it's like, all right, I'm gonna draw the right things in the right order, I'm gonna try and figure things out. And what I like about the DMC is it skips all of that pretense and just gets
2: turn one. Now you're in the immediately difficult puzzle puzzle solving end game, basically. And those those, yeah, those yeah, puzzle states, like you're saying, do happen in quote-unquote normal magic, where yeah, you just have a huge board state, and it's like every turn, can I attack? Well, here's their one good block, but then if they have a combat trick, and so on and so forth. Or- and
1: I actually don't like that in normal magic. Like I, I try to avoid those kinds of game right. states in my own cube. I feel like it comes up most often for me in like, sealed. I know in the Modern Horizons pre-release of one of my matches, we spent 45 of the 50 minutes of the round on the first game, and it was like classic... Am I going to die to mill first before I draw one? Like it was exactly like the generic micro cube, right? It was like I have a four answers in this deck of six cards, and I know my opponent doesn't have anything else they can do because they have said this or whatever. And it's like, am I going to be able to get them dead before I mill out? And I was able to finally get there. And then the second game, we we're just like, we're not doing this. Like we're like we're not. Like my <laughs> opponent was literally like, you're slightly ahead by turn four. We're never going to finish this game and another game in time for the round. So I just concede, right? Like it was not fun for either of us because. It was so dragged out. So,
2: so the moral is just separate your types of experiences and go for what of, you
1: want. Kind of. Kind of. I mean, that is kind of what my my. I mean, those are two cubes I have in paper: are the Bun Magic Cube and the Degenerate Micro Cube. And it, to me, they're totally different experiences. It's like, do you want to play this like? you described it when when you dragged me in your interview with Jason <laughs> you oh, described no. oh, it
2: no. as cerebral but not fun <laughs> well so no he's he he's, he described another cube that way in a, a stream and i was like oh, I you're know. like oh you can't gave, a really, you gave that's me the language to describe, <laughs> to describe that
1: cube that i hate yeah it is a very different experience i like separating my my magic concerns and my cube is very much about like you are playing on this like access of tempo and value and every play is going to like push that needle a little bit one direction or the other there's not any huge swiggy game is over now plays there's no reanimator there's no combos you have to like navigate this tempo value axis relative to your opponent and like eke out a win in the tempo of the game and the dmc is total opposite it's like it doesn't matter like spend the first five turns doing nothing even though you have elvish spirit guide channel emmer in hand because you know you can't activate it or spend a bunch of turns doing nothing even though you have dark depths and thespian stage in play because you have to like get all of your ducks in a row first.
2: So how do you feel about this? these three descriptions of what makes a cube hard? Sum them up again, because I, I got lost. Uh, so like we've said, it is a zero-sum game, so it can't really be hard in itself because it is a game against your opponent, and its level of difficulty depends on your opponent's skill level. But it can be hard in the sense that there is a level of investment a level of skill that it takes to play it competently or to play it in such a way that you are making meaningful strategic decisions or feel like you are or feel even like if you you're are. failing to do it uh it can also be challenging in that there is a high ceiling to actually being able to master it so it seems challenging right. in getting towards that peak uh and it can also be hard just in the sense that it is exhausting and takes a lot of work <laughs> even if you are able to do that work and that work itself is within your skill set
1: i think that all makes sense for me i'm going to give the first type of complexity. A thumbs down, but a little bit in the middle in that I don't want my cube to be complicated in that way, but I think it is a natural consequence of the kind of complexity which I like. like right, I so think I'm- it's very hard to have an environment with a very high skill ceiling that doesn't have a fair bit of that collateral damage complexity just in terms of there are a lot of cards here, they have a lot of text, they do stuff. That complexity is where a lot of that skill mastery ends up living.
2: Totally. And so for my my own cube goals, I'm generally thinking I want to raise this skill level for the mastery as high as possible. I was going to give that one a thumbs up. If there is a way that I can do that while also lowering the the level to play competently and to make it more accessible, I will always definitely take that option.
1: Okay. What's the speed round? I think a lot of people are going to share those goals. Speed round for ways to do that. One came up in the Discord today, which I had never actually said out loud until someone asked a question on the Discord, but saying it out loud made me realize this was true for me. I have loved double fetch, triple shock fixing in my my 360 card cube for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I've loved it is that previously I was on a very sort of motley crew of mixed fixing lands. I had like one cycle of fetches, one cycle of duels, and like two to three cycles of like total hodgepodge, whatever the color pair wants, you know, kind of fixing lands. And while that was nice because it was singleton or whatever, what I ultimately found at the end of the day was that Fixing land for for me, for my goals, I just want it to be a fixing land. I don't want you to have to like think about the bicycle land versus the check land versus the fast land versus the pathway land versus whatever. I want there to be 50 cards in my cube, 20 fetches, 30 shocks, that are just effectively two unique card rule sets, right? Just with different colors applied to them each time. And that makes what would otherwise be a very complicated pack in terms of like card text you have to read and process. A lot easier when four of the cards in your 15 card pack are just fixing lands and all you have to do is process the colors and you can ignore the rest of that text as you know what those cards do because you've already learned it that's one way in which i feel like my cube has succeeded in making the mastery ceiling high because having that much fixing available does change the way the cube is drafted and it gives you more choices and more opportunities to make functional decks with more colors and that kind of stuff while also keeping the competency level like kind of low because there's only two different kinds of lands and it's just a fetch land or it's a shock land
2: importantly i think that the those complicated lands the check lands the uh, buddy lands whatever they are i don't think they Tango actually lands. really add to the mastery ceiling at all because you just still just take the fixing and play it right it just adds complexity that makes it confusing and, exactly. and throws wrenches into tears into your gameplay and
1: to your point your cube you know one of its primary sources of fixing is eight or ten prismatic vistas just including 60 Prismatic fixes would be this but even further, right? That would just be, do you want fixing or not? It doesn't even matter what colors you are. Like, every pack has some number of fixing picks, and you can just decide when you want to take fixing or when you don't want to take fixing.
2: Right, and to be fair, there's also a lot of other fixing that is extremely more complicated because there's man lands and bounce lands and horizon lands. Yeah. But I, I think that those actually do add strategic interest and complexity and raise that mastery ceiling for that environment. What are other examples
1: of ways you can actually cut down on that competency complexity while either maintaining or even raising the skill ceiling.
2: So another one would just be eliminating two-card combos or other things. You really need to have specific knowledge about this environment to evaluate how the card is going to function. And I I think that's very much a matter of taste if you enjoy those certain types of cards, those certain kinds of effects, if you actually find it satisfying. Like, if part of the mastery that you enjoy is knowing that specific environment, then you would want to keep those. But I think if you're very much interested in, like, solving new problems uh mm-hmm. where it's not just a matter of like do i draft this do i also get this now i have a you know a strategy i have a, a plan for my deck i think that can be a great way to minimize some of those kinds of complexity
1: now i am genuinely confused as to where the line is for you because that is a kind of complexity i also know you to really like like oh yeah i combine my reckless rage and my favorite hoplite and like yes that's not Pestermite splinter's win in the sense that it won you the game immediately but realistically it does win you the game in your cube when you have a one mana, instant speed, save my creature, and remove your biggest threat, and like get additional value on top of it.
2: That's a ton of fun. I would recommend that, by the way. <laughs>
1: but but seriously, so like to me, like that's actually something that happened in your cube over the weekend that I'd never seen before and never even considered. Like I knew that you had this heroic card. I knew that Reckless Rage was there, mostly for Feather, but also for heroic cards that had more mm-hmm. than two toughness. Favorite Hoplite has two toughness, but it has this line of text that says when you target it with a spell, prevent all damage that would be dealt to it. So it's like this weird combination of like yes, it, w- it works really well. That's an example to me. That's like almost exactly the same as Pestermite, might, Splinter Twin.
2: So I think that's actually the perfect example. But maybe the the degree to which that is game ending is relevant. I'm really excited. I think maybe the example that we've talked about a couple of times the last couple of weeks is uh, Thunderous Order, where we've talked about how you really don't enjoy this sort of like yeah, fiddly extra fiddly nuance. What's got? But to me, I feel like the difference is. That is not the, like, game-breaking decision. The, the, whether or not you're losing most it games... Was last, it was on Friday for me. I lost a Reckless Rage favorite hoplite. ...doesn't usually revolve around, am I, like, tracking every single keyword that I have in my deck? Uh, mm-hmm. It is more about, you know, just other simpler effects. Do I have a good curve of creatures and removal and interaction but there's this opportunity for those to come up sometimes. Like I feel like that's those kinds of things are actually just creating a long tail where there is a lot of opportunity for mastery, but if you ignore those, you're still very much middle of the pack and those decisions don't matter a lot of the time. But because they are, you know, smaller decisions, I feel like that actually works well to expand that that sort of band of uh, having a, a good time to, regardless of your skill level.
1: I think It makes sense that what that basically gives you is, in theory, right? Like, I like the idea that, you know, you don't actually really have to care when you're drafting, right? You can just draft a good curve and play efficient spells, and it's not like, if you're not paying attention to favorite Hoplite Reckless Rage, you're going to lose all the matches, because everyone else has a favorite Hoplite Reckless Rage, and you don't. In my experience, I think that does really shape your environment, because that's what I have ignored for years drafting your cube because i'm like i don't want to think about that i don't care it's only going to come up 10 percent of the games that i actually play assuming there's no removal or whatever and i consistently lose to those kinds of things and so the more successful drafts i've had in your cube are the ones where i have actually started paying attention to being like well i guess in order for me to draft it successfully what i have to do is draft these like eight mini pester and Splinter Twin combos in my deck that require me to know what else is in the pool and require me to know these card interactions because I can't just win playing good spells on curve.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely overall a more synergistic cube. So I feel like this is coming from, like, specific experience, and I'm I'm interested about, like, the way you continue to draft this cube if you'll me ever too. play it again. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I would definitely
1: play it again. It's an interesting learning experience for me because, I, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm so conditioned by my own cube and the other kinds of environments I think about the most to be like, don't get distracted by these like things that only happen some percentage of the time because that pales in comparison to the importance of having a functional deck that has a good curve. So like a dumb example there is like, Reckless Rage. For people who don't know, Reckless Rage is a sorcery that says deal four damage to target creature you don't control and two damage to target creature you do control. And what this reads like to my pre-two weeks ago playing Anthony's Cube Brain is like, this is an inconsistent bad removal spell because... I can't cast it's a, it. It's a worse bone shards. It's considerably worse. But what it reads to me is like, it's a spell I can't cast sometimes because I have a a creature. I can't cast it at all. It's a spell that sometimes I can't cast profitably because the thing I'm going to kill of my own is actually more valuable to me than the thing I'm going to kill of my opponents. And all that inconsistency just kind of pans out to me as like, I would much rather have anything that's consistent over this highly variable thing that I have only somewhat of control over. When I play that way and don't take the Reckless Rage and don't take these other spells that have these conditional like build-aroundy synergies, I just lose because my opponent has those kinds of things. And we've talked about Snow I mean, End in the show. I think part of what makes your environment work is that you have so many of those things that even if one only right. happens in five percent of games, you have seven Something others. Something is gonna happen in right. every game. You have seven others, and if you don't get to put your Thunderous Order and your Swift Blade Vindicator together, you can put your Swift Blade Vindicator together with a with a combat trick, or you can put your thunderous order together with a Vault Scourge, right? Or, like, you know, something else. Like, you'll have some other, like, weird combinations of things that will eat out that value. But, I don't know. I guess I'm just saying it is interesting to me to hear you say that you want to discourage, like, specific knowledge of cards and interactions being the thing that drives success in the environment because I kind of feel like that's exactly what your cube is to me.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's not a simple answer and it's not like i right. want it to be all one or the other right it's just that by trying to widen that skill gap where players can still have an engaging time and feel like they're enjoying it and i feel like there's a difference between losing to something like that than losing to literally use splitter twin pestermite it's right. like that's nonsense what are you doing <laughs> over there this came up in our discussion about tempo too
1: where i was basically making the argument that i don't think tempo can be applied to every deck and every strategy in magic and the example i gave was like you could have a matchup where some green ramp deck curves out, uses all of its mana every single turn, plays some ramp, plays some big threats early, gets their opponent down to like four life, and then their opponent just says, all right, I did nothing else this whole game, but I'll cast Pestermite, untap, cast Splinter Twin, and I win. And it's like, did that other deck, right. did that blue-red deck, we did nothing but cast two spells? Did it use tempo to win? Can tempo explain why that deck won that game? And it's like, no, it can't. These two cards we put together explain why it won that game, even though... It completely ignored tempo. Basically,
2: should I note reckless rage
1: is an instant? Uh, I suppose, sure. Let's, okay, uh, so we don't get letters. Don't tweet me. Reckless rage is an instant. Really good with feather. It's brutal with and feather, and apparently pretty good with favorite hoplite. I'm so
2: glad that somebody played favorite hop favorite hoplite.
1: It was in a non-heroic deck too. It was just like a grid draft deck where they like needed a playable and just jammed a favorite hoplite in there. Hell yeah! And I gotta say, in my defense, long term. Really bad choice. I, I won that match pretty <laughs> handily. I only lost the one game where they happened to draw those two cards that combined in this like overly powerful way and I got totally blown out. Sometimes it happens. Well, let's go to our new segment, the salt box. <laughs> 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 I think this relates to the
2: conversation we had today. Do other cities have salt boxes or is that? Yeah. That? Okay. Cool. Totally.
1: I mean, I think it's pretty unique to like the Northeast and other places that get lots of snow, obviously. But for those of you that maybe don't live in a snow a snowy area with minimal public services. Some places, instead of salting the roads properly or whatever, just have salt boxes around the city painted with big letters that say salt box and they will just put a bunch of salt in them. And then if you need to salt your sidewalk or whatever, you can go take salt from the box. This is a new (laughs) segment where we talk about times where we got salty. I I got two stories, Anthony. Uh, They both are me, me and you playing each other. One of them is me punting horribly because I didn't, I missed some competency complicatedness on a card. And one of them is you punting horribly for missing some competency complicatedness on a card. I'll start with you so I can end on me. Perfect. We were playing the Degenerate Microcube. You were not having a good time. You were being a little salty. This is the salt box. This is this is known to happen. You exclaimed at some turn, because you, you felt like you were behind in the game. I was playing uh-huh. I was playing Oko Bridge, which is my new favorite combo in the Degenerate Micro Cube, where it doesn't matter what the rest of your deck is. I mean, you play as much interaction as you can, counter spells, removal spells,
2: whatever. Then you have it's, it's like Kiki Twin, except it's so much more It's like what's the, what's the phrase? Uh, <laughs>
1: tiring? It's like Kiki Twin, except what if Kiki and Twin both also stop your opponent from doing things and then also could be combined to win the game. It's this great little combo. I love it in the DMC where you play this hard control deck, your only win condition is Oko plus and snaring bridge. And snaring bridge stops all creatures from attacking you. So you can ignore all creatures. Oko can turn anything that would be a dangerous into a creature that can't attack you anymore. Uh, And then you use all your counter spells on anything that Oko and Bridge don't answer. Mostly to protect Oko and Bridge, frankly, because you can't have those things removed. Then you just make a million elk uh, and eventually elk your own bridge and attack for lethal. It's great. I love it. Really good. You felt like you were behind. You were grumpy because you were playing the Dinerant Michael Cube in the first place. And you, and, then, you,
2: and then my opponent played Oko. That doesn't put anybody in a positive You even exclaimed so.
1: after a couple turns, like, gosh, sure, I'm glad my, my decisions matter in this game. Like, you made some sort of, like, <laughs> statement like that. And we had this turn where, like, the game was almost wrapped up. You had, like, no cards left in library, a couple cards in hand, or maybe one card left in your library or something. And I was like, do I duress you or not? And I decided not to for some complicated reason. And your turn was play Luris. Off of Dark Ritual, and then you had exactly two men up to cast something out of your graveyard. And I think you cast Containment Priest or something. But you were like, you were like, my decision doesn't matter; it's irrelevant because like I can't do anything on this board state. But it turns out you actually had Sorcerer's Spyglass in your graveyard. You could have cast with Luris and just locked me out of the game by turning off Oko and eventually killed me with with Luris.
2: That's also a great example where like I was fatigued. I wasn't right. I wasn't looking at the entire range of possibilities. And again, like I was failed by my heuristics where I was looking for a way to remove a permanent and right. Uh,
1: yeah. Or also, like, you were looking for, you know, I mostly I think, think of Lurus when I think the... of, like, creatures and stuff. Because like, you think of things right. that naturally go to the graveyard. You don't usually think of, like, a sorcerer's spyglass, which I think I had already duress or thoughts from the earlier that game to protect my Oko. You don't think of that as, like, I think you get back with Lurus. I thought it was very funny that you were like, oh, gosh, my decisions don't matter. And then you punted away a very clear on-board win. <laughs> that, was, that was part of the saltbox. box. That's proving my point. <laughs>
2: That's part of the saltbox. box.
1: Here's mine, though. I, I'll end on me to, like, you know, make it fair and square. We were playing a grid draft of your regular cube, which I felt had gone terribly for me, and I was salty about it. Again, we're in the salt box. I ended up in this kind of like Naya aggressive deck. And I do think aggressive decks work in your cube. I am totally convinced and sold by them. They are harder to make work in a grid draft. And it was particularly the grid draft. I felt like I just had no other reasonable options. Like the cards that were presented to me, I really felt like I was kind of pushed down this lane into a deck that I knew was not going to be successful. And so I was like grimy and salty about it. And I spent <laughs> this first game, which is the only game I had a chance of winning. I think we played like three games of these decks and you stopped me, you know, in all the games. The first one was kind of close though. And it came down to you having just five life. I had some two powered flyer. I can't remember what it was. Uh, do you remember what two powered flyer was? I can't remember. It was something. Some two powered flyer. And I had a fearless fledgling, which is the two mana, the one and a white one, one that has landfall. When you play a land, it gets a plus one, plus one counter and gains flying into end of turn. And we had some, a big board state, long game, and I thought for sure I had eked out a win finally. I was like trying to play to my outs and like do my things, and I eventually had the situation where I had Chandra's Pyrohelix in hand, you were at five, and I had, I think, a tap spell and a removal spell or something, and I could just tap down your two other flyers. You had a Curator of Mysteries and some other big flyer or something, so I could finally attack in for three and then kill you with Pyrohelix, and only at that point... Did I realize when I swung in with my two power flyer and my fledgling, and I said, attack you for three in the air? And you said, you didn't play a land. Fledgling isn't that flying. <laughs> and I got so mad because that stupid fledgling, which has wings and looks like it's flying and it's a bird, only has flying when you've played a land that turn, which I had built my entire game plan around the idea that I could attack with that stupid flyer. And it couldn't fly because it hadn't played a land. And then I got very salty and lost.
2: You're not wrong that that was a bad experience. I still love Fearless <laughs> was... plunging. I think it's honestly pretty overpowered, my cube. I don't but, think it's overpowered. I think it's good, though. Uh, it's quite solid. But I agree if if there's something I could do to to fix that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's, it's, I mean, it's not your fault. I do think Fludging is really good for your cube. You know, it's got the land, fall synergy. You do have, like, a lands thing going on in your cube. It's got the plus one, plus one counter synergy. You've got a couple of proliferate things going on in your cube. I think it's a reasonable aggressive body i think flying is important for the aggressive i think it's a great fit for your cube i am mad at mark rosewater and the, <laughs> and the magic the gathering creative team for making a bird that has wings and is flying through the air that does not always have
2: flying it's nonsense how do we fix this so we need some sort we of take like a sharpie we write wing, flying on it wing tokens that when you play a land you have to add the wing tokens and it just sort of makes it very uh, physical it, just
1: hear me out here. If a thing can only temporarily gain flying, it should not be flying in the art. It should not be a bird. It's, it, it's not
2: flying great though, to be honest.
1: If it was a, you know, a, a warrior or something, if it, take, take its flavor out. Pretend with, it's some, with some fledgling. spirit
2: wings behind it. Sure.
1: If it was a thing that that flavorfully was always on the ground and then sometimes could fly, great. You know, that's, that's the flavor I want. Fearless fledgling is a bird. Birds fly. It's a pretty good flavor though. All right, that's been it for Lucky Paper Radio. I hope you liked our new segment, The Salt Box. We'll be returning to there whenever Anthony and I get overly salty playing a game of magic. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All of the magic cards are made by Wizards of the Coast. All the listening is done by you, and all the talking is done by me and my friend, Anthony. Thanks for talking about magic with me, Anthony.
2: Thanks for talking about magic with me, Andy. I was thinking... We like to talk about food. Oh, do we? But I'm not really into the just like give a recipe idea because... Uh, I think it's hard to give a recipe on air. It's hard to give a recipe on I air. I think it's
1: much easier to talk about like the technique of cooking something than it is to like read off a recipe like you know, half a cup of this, a pinch of that or whatever. But if you describe like a technique that you like, yeah, I that also could feel be fun. like
2: If I'm talking about recipes, they're not my recipes. Sure. That's not fair. I, I can do a food thing. Here's, here's a good example. Should we make a whole segment about like food things... That are not just giving a recipe, but it's like a technique, it's a workflow, it's a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we could call it... Food level ups. Kitchen say food level ups. Kitchen food level ups. Kitchen food
1: level ups. Here's my food thing for the day. Some people out there don't like mushrooms. You might be listening to this and saying, yeah, I don't like mushrooms. Mushrooms are I've gross. met
2: some of these people, yeah.
1: I, for a long time, didn't like anything that wasn't pizza or spaghetti. So <laughs> I, I definitely had a period in my life where I didn't like mushrooms. Here's my top tip for cooking mushrooms such as I think almost anybody will like it. And you can use this if you're going to put mushrooms in anything, in a pasta, on top of a salad, on top of burger, anywhere you're going to put mushrooms. Here's how I recommend cooking them. Butter, very low heat, very long time. And basically what you're going to do is you're going to dry out those mushrooms. You're going to get all that like, you know, squishy kind of slimy texture out of them. And you're going to make them crispy and fully impregnated with butter and cook them until they're nice and brown and really cooked down. And you'll be able to tell like, They'll basically, they have a lot of moisture in them and for a long time they'll be cooking, but they won't really be getting much darker. They're just going to be kind of like getting smaller and shrinking and there's going be water coming out of them. And eventually the water will kind of stop coming out. They'll caramelize a little bit. Then they're done. Take them off, put them on some paper towels for a little bit, add a little salt. And I think you will love mushrooms.
2: What's What are we talking long time? Like 30, 40 minutes? It depends
1: how low, low heat is. But yeah, 30, 40 minutes. Like for sure. I've done mushrooms that long. It also depends on how big your pan is relative to how many mushrooms you have. If when you first put them in the pan, they're kind of stacked on top of each other and like a little pile, pile it up thick, it'll take longer. If you have a big wide pan with a lot of surface area and they get them all flat, it'll take less time.
2: It's important that we don't just say brown anything in butter because that's kind of like kicker. If we give that as a technique, we can't ever use it again.
1: Well, what I'm specifically saying is like most of the time, I feel like most cooking techniques for me come down to cook it pretty fast. <laughs> like,
2: like. <laughs> Interesting. I
1: know I'm oversimplifying, but like- huh. You know how
2: you've been cooking that thing so slow?
1: Well, oftentimes what you're trying to do when you're cooking something is you're trying to maintain some juiciness, but you're also trying to get some caramelized outer something. Like vegetables, I feel like, are almost always best when they are roasted at a high heat for a short amount of time. Similar with, I mean, it depends on the vegetables. Some things you got to like soften up a little bit. For the most part, though, meat, you know, any kind of like steak or whatever, like what you want to do is like high heat on the outside, get it crispy, get it charred, but medium rare you want it like you know barely cooked to the inside chicken's a little different now. you don't want your chicken medium rare anyway i feel like a lot of cooking comes down to that for me mushrooms are one of the things that i did not know how to cook them this place. So i was cooking them like i cook other things i was cooking mushrooms the same way i was caramelizing onions i was putting them in a hot pan with a little bit of fat trying to like you know get them going and never really loved it It always kind of came out slimy or whatever really low really long time it's gonna do you good
2: low and slow is like the foundation of good cooking Look, you're better cooked than me. Okay, this is the best <laughs> I can do for you. The, uh, do your mushrooms I'm just slow saying. And slow. I'm just saying. You're right, but both these things are extremely important pillars.
1: Test one two. Test one two. Anthony, give us a test one two.
2: A test one, two. I'm a reading the A test overview one, two. For check a, check a microphone.
1: A test one, two. I'm
0: doing a cube.